God, we love you so much. We thank you for uh, this morning, Lord, for a time uh, to come together, Lord, as uh, people searching, seeking along the way, those who don't believe, those who have been transformed uh, in belief in Christ, Lord, and I just pray that uh, as we are today, we would come to your word, to your truth, to you, God, submitting our will, our understanding, Lord, and, and finding, Lord, your glorious truth to be real and to be effective in our lives. Lord, I thank you for Habakkuk, uh, a prophet, a man who struggled, who struggled well with what he saw. Um, I pray that we would learn from his uh, journey and his uh, interaction with you. So we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so, interesting story to start off with. I used to, um, I used to travel a lot and do music for camps, retreats, and conferences. And, and mostly what I did that for was kind of the, the student ministry age, uh, high school, middle school. I did some college young adults, but a, a lot of it was high school, middle school. Um, with that, you know, I'm, you're up on stage, the whole room sees you, and sometimes it was groups of 25, sometimes it was groups of, you know, thousands, but, but you're on stage, the room sees you, oftentimes you end up, it was impossible for me to interact with everybody, no, no matter how much we tried. And so it became a common thing for me to be out and about and to see a teenager and to see this look on their face, and I was like, oh no, because that look was... They recognize me. I know you. And they're walking to me to say hi. And I'm like scanning my brain. I'm like, who is this? Who is this? I know I'm supposed to know them. Where were they? Because it's really important, to, if you, especially if you've met them. Like the worst thing is like, hey, what's your name? And they're like, oh, it's the same as it was the last time you asked. You know, like that's, you don't want that, especially in ministry. Uh, but so I'm always like, it just became normal. And I, I got really good at faking it. Elementary age kids are really easy because they say, do you remember my name? And I say, of course I do. Do you remember your name? And they go, yeah, it's Mike. And I go, you're right. You know, and so that doesn't work once they get out of like elementary school. But, but so like I, I was doing this camp one summer and I'm in the lunchroom getting my, my tray and I just turned from the drink station and there's this girl standing here, this high school girl looking at me like with that face. And I scanned into my delight. I was like, I know this one. And I was like, hey, and I wanted to show it off. So I was like, hey, Lauren, how are you? And like that face went to, what? And she goes, it's, it's Jessica. And I don't know where I was at, but I was fairly confident, and I doubled down, and I corrected her. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 it's, it's Lauren. And she looks at me again. No, it's Jessica. Not dissuaded. I know what I'm talking about. I was, again, very confident. I was like, I know this one. I was like, no, you're Lauren. My sister used to tutor you when you were in elementary school. She goes, no, Heath, I'm your cousin, Jessica. And then immediately, I was like, oh, my gosh, she is. And it was my cousin. And to my credit, to my credit, I hadn't seen her in a couple years, and she had blonde hair, not blue hair, the last time I saw her, but still, she was my cousin, and man, my, <laughs> and those kind of happenings are far too common in my life, but I had wrong assumptions, and those wrong assumptions exposed my foolish understanding and could even have caused some confusion and anger. 
until that story to set us up for the day. This is often how it goes with God. When his actions and events of this life don't line up with how or what we think God should do or be, we get confused. We get frustrated. We get angry. It gets awkward. It's these flawed assumptions about, about who we are and who God is that cause much of our confusion and anguish when it comes to our walk of faith. It comes to our belief in God. It comes to our experience of this life. This is the same for Habakkuk. This false, uh, these false assumptions that lead to frustrations. So we've been, we started studying Habakkuk last week. Uh, go ahead and turn there if you will. I, I, I don't know what pages there are in our in our. In our Bibles, I think it's like 667 and 447 or something like that. Um, if you have the black one, I think it's 667. If you don't have a blackboard, I think it's 440-something. It's a really small book. Feel free to use table of contents. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. We also use the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you can go and look for a live event, and there'll be a kind of a guide in there to help you follow along in the sermon. Um, but we're continuing through Habakkuk, and just for some quick review, Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. The, 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 king, the people of Israel have split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet in the southern kingdom. He served under a, a king, King Jehoiakim. He was an evil, evil king. And because of his evil rule, evil, the people started perpetuating that evil. And this is the people of Israel. And if you don't know, these were the people of God. These were the people set apart by God for his holy purpose. The people that his covenant was meant to be fulfilled to and through for all eternity. So these are these people. The people followed the king. The king was so evil that when they were overthrown by the Assyrians, instead of deposing him, they appointed him as a vassal king. And then when the Babylonians came behind them, he said, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll go with you too. So then the Babylonians made him a vassal king. So again, that means a king that served for them as, as a ruler. So again, a bad dude. So this is so just not good in Judah. Habakkuk has, has watched this, this corruption of God's people just, just deteriorate and, and just explode before his eyes. And he's, 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 he's exasperated. He's broken. That's what we talked about last week. And he cries out to God, you know, how long, God, will you let this happen? How long, God, will you allow your name to be tarnished by your people? Bring judgment is what he says last week, what we talked about. And so Habakkuk is crying out for God's correction of Judah so that they would return to God and know faithfulness once again and be a blessed people once again. It's all too fresh what happened to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had just previously been annihilated and exiled and taken over. And so he remembers that. It just hasn't been too long ago. And he sees it going the same for his. And he's just, he's desperate. And he cried out to God. And, and last week we talked about it. Habakkuk did not like God's answer. God tells Habakkuk he will restore, he will restore the people of Israel but it would come through God's judgment being carried out at the hands of the Babylonians. That's the Chaldeans, as we are referencing here in our text. These Babylonians, they are an evil, ruthless, and bloodthirsty people. Habakkuk doesn't like this answer. Our text and message today focus on Habakkuk's flawed understanding and assumptions that cause him to question God and his tactics, ta his tactics in response. So we're going to start off just looking at Habakkuk 1.12. We're going to read through, uh, we'll end up working all the way through 2.5 today. Uh, Habakkuk 1.12 says this, 
It says, are you not from everlasting? This is Habakkuk responding to God after God told him what would happen. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk believed God and accepts God's words, but is perplexed. He sees, okay, so God said this, and he didn't say, oh, God, just, he's got to be pulling my leg. He didn't do like I did to Jessica and just dismiss her. He, he believed God, but he was perplexed. He's wrestling with God and raises some questions of, of objection. And I suspect these objections will sound familiar for you and I. They're ones that either you have asked yourself or have heard asked many times. How can God be good and all this bad stuff happen? How can evil exist if God is good, if God is sovereign, if God is loving? How can I be going through this if God cares for me? These are some of the objections that Habakkuk is making. Let's look at Habakkuk's objections in order to understand his and our flawed assumptions. So the first objection that Habakkuk makes is this. He says this. He says, God, this can't be so because you are too good to do this. God, you are too good to do these things you say you're going to do. Look at verse 13 right there in chapter 1. It says, you, he's speaking of God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying, God, like you say, like you say you cannot stand to see evil, you cannot stand to see the oppressed, and yet you're letting it happen, not just letting it happen, but you're letting it happen by a people that are far more wicked than we are. Habakkuk, this appeal that he's making is to God's holiness. He's putting God's holiness, he's bringing God's holiness into light and into question. He says, you are a holy God who cannot tolerate wickedness. Why are you putting up with this is basically what he says. He says, why would you use a wicked people like the Babylonians? I mean, look, look at what it says from there, verses 14 through 17. It says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, speaking of the Babylonians, bring all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on employing his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So he's making this analogy that Judah and mankind are like the fish and the Babylonians are the fishermen and they're doing what they, what they please. And I think about this video I saw. I love going down the YouTube rabbit hole and I came across this one of these, these tuna, this, this tuna fishing boat and they come up on this school of tuna and it was like all hands on deck. They... They wanted to pillage every single tuna they could. And it's this amazing picture of these like 15, 20 guys on the side of the boat. And, and they just have these poles. And they and I don't know, I guess, I don't even know, the, I don't know how this happens. But for whatever reason, every time they put their hook in, a tuna bites it. And they just sling it over their head. And this huge tuna goes flying and lands in the boat. And they're just doing this and just, and it's like, and it's amazing. First off, it's really funny because the, the guys on the boat 
are scrambling to get a pole, but they're also dodging fish as they're trying to get there. But they had to just get, it didn't matter, it was no conservationist thought in mind, it was just get every single tuna we can get. And, and this is kind of this picture that they, that they live for greed, they live for their own purpose, we are at their mercy, they're taking and just pillaging every bit of who we are. And, and Habakkuk's putting this in, into view, He's saying, God, how can you in your holiness stand by and watch this? Again, remember, in God's holiness, his holiness demands rightness. His holiness sets the standard. His holiness calls judgment on those who fall short of that standard. And so he's saying, God, the God who is holy, who, lo- who, who loves those in anguish, the oppressed, the destitute. He's like, this isn't you, God. This isn't the God that I know that just stands by and watches your people just, just be treated like this. And there's this history of all the time the calling out to God re- results in God's wrath coming against their enemy. But all of a sudden, God's wrath is coming against them by their enemy. And he's like, this isn't you, God. He says, they're wicked. You are holy. This shouldn't be. Habakkuk not only calls God's holiness into question here, he also calls God's goodness into question. And that, which, you know, God's goodness is the intent of his holiness. And don't we do the same thing? I mean, God, again, how can you be good if this is happening when we look around us in the circumstances of our lives? Again, as we kind of started out saying, don't we say, God, if you hate sin and evil so much, why would you let this happen to me or to the world around me? Or why do you let this continue to go on? We may, we may look at the circumstances of our lives and say, God, I, I, thought, I thought you were good. Why would you let me lose my job, my spouse, my friend? Why would you let this affliction come upon me? Why would you let this sickness come upon me? I've done nothing but good for you. I've tried to eat right. I've tried to be healthy. I've tried to be kind. Why do I deserve this? Why would you let me continue to struggle with depression or anxiety? I mean, these are all things that we have asked God in in calling his goodness into question. So that's objection one. There will be resolve, don't worry. God is too good for this to happen. So what's Habakkuk's second objection? So the second one is this. Habakkuk basically says, God, I am too good to deserve this. And I being him representative of his people, of course. But he's saying, God, I'm too good to deserve this. Again, let's go back to verse 13, looking at the second half there. It says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk, do you, you see that? He's indignant. He's indignant that God will use a people far more wicked than those in Judah to bring about his correction. Habakkuk is saying, we're too good to deserve this, at least at the hands of them. Your hand, okay. Their hand, no, we're too good for that. Never mind, never mind the irony of this objection that just a few minutes earlier in this, in this book, again, yesterday, for us it was last week, but it's just a few verses earlier in this writing. Habakkuk, what was he doing? He was calling out to God. I mean, it says right here in, in, in 1 5, look among the nations and see, wonder, that's the Lord's answer, sorry. Uh, verse 2, uh, 1 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and will you not hear, or cry for to you violence and you will not save? He's talking, he's describing the activity of the people of Judah, his people. And he's saying, 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. He's saying, God, he's talking about his people. And he's saying, come, correct. He's that, so it's such a funny irony to me that Judah, Habakkuk was just crying out to God to bring correction on the, on the, on the, injustice and violence of his people but yet now he's mad that God would use a, a people far more wicked but if you look at the way that Habakkuk was describing his own people and the descriptions we see of the Babylonians there in the end of uh, in the second part of uh, chapter one not much difference especially when you think of the heart of it all uh, and and that just brings to me the blindness of self-righteousness. We, we end up talking about self-righteousness a lot because I think that self-righteousness, pride, whatever you want to label it, is the root of all of our sin. It was what caused Adam and Eve to say, we know better than the Almighty Creator God. My way is better. So that brings us to two one as we think about the blindness of self-righteousness. And, and, and so Habakkuk wraps up his plea was saying this. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So it's as if he's saying, I will go to the greatest vantage point and I will await your work. I will await for you to make sense of this. You could look at this verse as a picture of Habakkuk's self-righteousness as if he's saying, God, I've made my point and I'm confident in my point and I know they're right. Now prove me wrong if you're able. You could look at it that way, or you could look at it, you could read it as Habakkuk saying, God, this is what I know, but this is what I don't understand. I wait here expectantly until you give me correct understanding. You know, the second would obviously be a better posture in which to bring questions to God, but in reality, we can see both being very likely. But what matters most is that it's God's response that matters, and I think God will respond similarly either way. God's answers show Habakkuk this. It shows that his objections are based on some very flawed assumptions, as we mentioned. So let's, let's look at God's answers. The first thing God says is, he says this, you must recognize my ultimate purpose and, I, and that I will fulfill it. So Habakkuk uh, 2, 2 and 3 says this, And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It surely will come. It will not delay. So what does God say there? God reminds Habakkuk, he reminds him that these circumstances are not in conflict with his goodness, but are, but are present precisely because of his goodness. Notice in 2.2 that it says, for still the vision awaits, it's appointed time, and then it says, if it seems slow, wait for it. You see, again, God and Habakkuk wanted the same thing. They both wanted Judah to repent and be restored. God just knew the bigger picture, and he was working with the end in mind. God knew that the proclamation of a prophet would no longer turn the hearts of his people this pattern had been repeated. God knew that it would take the people of Judah being overrun and held in exile for them to be restored. And this did happen. This exact thing did happen in 605 B.C. Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. They came in, overran Judah, 
took them all captive, and they lived in exile there for, for 70 years outside of their home. And then after 70 years, they were freed, and they were not only returned to their land, but they also returned to their God. And if you continue to read, you see, a, you see multiple movements of, of, of revival through the people of, of Israel as they returned. So it wasn't just we got our land back, but they returned to their God in, in humility and adoration. You see, God was faithful to accomplish his goal. Of course, Habakkuk doesn't have the, the benefit of being able to see that. He's still sitting in this place of, of, of finite understanding and, and faith. But what we see is that God used some very bad circumstances to achieve a very good result. You see, that, that's helpful in this concept of, of, that, that wasn't unfamiliar to Habakkuk, and it's probably not that foreign to you. We think about God's, sovereign, God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over all things. Nothing happens outside of his will, outside of his, his hand. And we say, okay, God's sovereign and good. And so we, we think that there's some discrepancy, but, but, but we're familiar with the way that this works. I think about my children and the way that I, 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 as a parent, I have a sense of sovereign care for my kids. But also as a parent, it is my responsibility to give them freedom, freedom that leads to risk. Without that, they don't grow, they don't mature, they don't learn. They don't understand loss. They don't understand suffering. And we think that's great, but it leads to it's not it's not full. It's empty. So as a parent giving sovereign care to my kids, our house we have a house and we have a corner lot and and we we can leave the back door open. It's the the backyard is is fenced in. The kids can't get out of the yard into the street. No one can get in. So so we leave the back door open and although we've kind of made the, the backyard relatively safe, they have free reign. They can come in and go out, but yet they're still under our sovereign care in our home. We've made it where they can't get to the sharp tools. They can't get to the chemicals in the garage, but yet they still have this free reign. But my care for them, my sovereign care is much different when we're walking through a busy parking lot. It's, it's, it's keep your hand on the car until we have everyone out, and then it's grab a hand. And we're walking hand in hand until we get to the sidewalk. And we, until we get to a safe place. It's my, it's my loving, sovereign care for my kids. And at some points, it looks like there's more freedom. At some points, it looks like it's limiting. But at all points, I have, to give, I have to make choices to give them some freedom that sometimes may lead to their pain because they learn that way. You know, and again, the, so to take those examples beyond, I mean, one day I'm going to have to give my kids keys to a car. I mean, the older I get, the crazier it is I think that we get to drive at 16 by ourselves. I, I mean, I remember it was the greatest day of my life, and I thought I was totally grown up and mature enough. I look back now, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Only by the grace of God do I, anyway, I mean, it's just. But again, like, we, we, do, our, we do our best to provide the boundaries, but, and yet there's freedom, but there's also this sovereign care. And so we, we're not unfamiliar with God working in ways that, that his sovereign care is never absent, although sometimes he gives us a wider birth that sometimes leads to pain. And he knows that. But he also knows that one of the greatest gifts any of us can know is to understand his sovereign care, to understand his grace. Because sometimes that pain comes upon us by others. Sometimes that pain we inflict on ourselves. 
And when it comes on us by others, it's his sovereign care that sustains. When it's afflicted on us, it's his sovereign grace that is extended. So God in his sovereign care works that way. So it's not really that unfamiliar, even though we have a hard time reconciling it sometimes. Here, here it's a little different, though. It's not just bad circumstances that God is using to correct uh, the people of Israel and Judah. But he's using actual wickedness. He's using wicked and evil people against them. Again, remember the Babylonians were horrible. Did you hear how they were described? Habakkuk says, how in the world can you use such evil people? Although we all struggle plenty with seeing, seeing God as being present and caring, as we just described in the midst of bad circumstances, we're more, we're more prone to accept that and uh, the pain that comes with it than when we see what it looks like God imploring evil. Like, is that what it is? Is God imploring evil for his purposes? How do we get our heads around like things like the Holocaust or, or ISIS? And, uh, you know, there's just pictures of just, just pure evil working against the world, but then also working, I mean, ISIS, again, innocent. The, the, the only crime they did was, was proclaiming Christ and seeing, seeing such atrocities committed against them. How is, how is God in that? How is God sovereign over that? Why would God allow this and then sometimes even use this? And I say sometimes just to soften it, but he always uses it. You think about, you think about Joseph in Egypt. He says, God took what Satan meant for harm and used it for good. There are some real, very real personal pictures of this too. I mean, maybe you've experienced just needlessly being slandered by someone in your life in a way that caused great harm to you. That's just evil inflicted upon you by someone else. Maybe you've been abused or assaulted. I would never want to make light of that absolute evil and, and uh, light of the hurt and pain to, and to ever imply that there should not be hurt and pain. But yet, what we can see is that God is still present and, and somehow he is still good in the midst of the worst evils acted upon us. I mean, can the Bible... The word of God is truth that expresses his character and his heart really be saying that God uses this kind of evil. This question is not a far leap to does God cause or condone evil? That's basically where Habakkuk is at right now. And let me just say a very clear answer is this, no. Scripture says God is not the author of sin. God did not cause these Babylonians to be evil. They were already evil. They were already evil. God, in his sovereign orchestration of all things, did allow their evil to be inflicted upon them, but they were already evil. He didn't stir up evilness in them. And also we have to see that no matter what, evil never goes unpunished. Habakkuk 1.11 says, Speaking of the Babylonians, they are guilty men whose own might is their God. So he's saying there is guilt in them. This is from God. There is guilt in them, and their guilt will bring on punishment. And, you know, and it's, it's great that that will be taken care of one day. But what about now? What about us? What about you? What about me? Why doesn't God just eliminate evil? If God is good, why doesn't he, he just eliminate it? Wouldn't that be better? If God just wiped out evil altogether, let's just think about where we are today. What is evil? 
again, we're talking about what one of the one of the objections Habakkuk made was was a call to his holiness. He called God's holiness into question. And so, if we remember that our measure is God's holiness, then if we define evil in contrast to that, then we see that evil, wickedness, and sin are really all in the same place because they are all in opposition to God's holiness. And so what, where does that lead us? What does Scripture say? It says all, that, that means that all that have sinned would be evil. Therefore, in order for God to eliminate evil, what would he have to do? He would have to eliminate all of us because all have sinned. Romans 3.23 Romans says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. So while we may not be like the, you know, as hideous as the Babylonians, we may not be murderers and, and rapists, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's holiness. Therefore, we all fall into this category of evil. We must remember that evil and righteousness are not measured by comparing us to one another, but are, but are rather measured by being compared to God. So when, God called God, when Habakkuk called God's holiness into question, he was really indicting himself. And what we see is that the very holiness of God proves this to be right. And the goodness of God says that evil must continue to exist. Why? Because God is holy and just. There must be recompense for those that have sinned against him. But God's love and mercy desires to see all that will repent and find redemption in Christ do so. We mentioned this passage last week, but it's worth mentioning again. Evil persists because God wants there to be time for all that will respond to respond to the grace given in Jesus. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Therefore, the, the presence of evil in our world is an evidence of God's goodness and mercy. Crazy to think about that. But I say that it's true. And His holiness and mercy come together in perfect view in this work of delayed judgment. Do you want to see the clearest picture of this, this kind of work that we have in Scripture? It's Jesus on the cross. What greater evil, what greater contrast of goodness and evil do we see collide than Jesus on the cross? He committed no sin. He was... He was the purest of innocence that there could be. But evil was acted upon him in slander, torture, and the most excruciating, humiliating, gory death that any had seen or imagined. Is there anything more evil than mankind attempting to kill God, which is what we see at the cross? You know, Habakkuk's second objection was that he was too good. The people were too good. And we must see, as we said earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all need this intervention. We all need this redemption. So we see this collision at the cross where, where God's goodness confronts our, our evil and need. You saw the hopelessness of the disciples as they went in hiding as if to ask, you know, can any good come out of this evil at all? 
do you see that it's through this ultimate act of evil that God brought about the ultimate act of redemption? And if Jesus, the Son of God, God taken on flesh, endured this, can we expect any different? Should we expect any different? And that's not to say we're destined to a life of, of, of just emptiness and fear. Because in Christ we are more than conquerors. In Christ we are made citizens of a kingdom. In Christ we have a hope that is incorruptible. In Christ we've been given a new name, a new identity, a new way of defining our worth. Not by what we've done or what we've achieved or what we've attained, but by what He has attained for us in Christ. It is only in this understanding of God that we can see that the cross was both evil and beautiful. And that is how we can view the That's how we can reconcile our lives, the things that happen in our lives. Yes, there's evil, but God's goodness is always present. That's what I hope we see today. We are human, and often our finite understanding will fall short of God's infinite wisdom. This will cause doubt and confusion, and hear this today. The goal of our lives is not that we never doubt again. That cannot be the pursuit of our faith that we never doubt because the very, the very essence, the very reality of what faith is demands doubt. Faith is the belief in the things unseen, the confidence in the things unseen. It is only, faith is only required and only experienced when there is doubt. So the call on our lives, the invitation for you is not that you work hard to never doubt again, but that we learn to doubt well. That we learn to bring our understandings, and I would hope that we could be described by the, the second proposition of, of, of Habakkuk's posture sitting in the tower. That we say, okay God, I believe your truth, I see your truth is right, but it doesn't make sense to me in this world, it doesn't make sense to me in my circumstances, it doesn't make sense to me in what I see. But instead of saying, God, prove your understanding, prove yourself to me, we say, God, I understand my understanding is short of you. My understanding is, my understanding is limited, so bring understanding to me through illuminating your truth by the Holy Spirit that you've given me. That's our invitation. There is no faith without doubt, so doubt is not sin, but to, but to doubt in a haughty, arrogant way would be. But let's learn to doubt well in humility and honesty trusting the Lord. While I pray that we always fight against evil, I also pray that in our fallen world we look at evil with hope and gratefulness, knowing that the presence of evil is evidence of the mercy of God. Bring your questions to God. It says, boldly approach the throne of grace. He invites you. Cast all your cares upon me. Bring them to his word and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate his truth and bring you understanding. Habakkuk 2.4 says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. We must live by faith, and our faith must be grounded in the person of God instead of the things of this world. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you are eternal, everlasting, that you are sovereign, that you are holy, and that you are good. God, I, I confess that my understanding and my, and my perspective of what is right falls way short and often turns to self-righteousness in asking you to answer to me. God, I pray that in all of our hearts we would be turned and inclined to understand that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are present, that you are never absent, you are never not working, you are never, uh, you are never at a loss. 
And so, Lord, I pray that just first in each of us there would be a confidence of hope in Christ, an assurance of your work being completed in our lives and eternally. But I also pray for a heart, for hearts and eyes that, that look out God, and see a world that is, that is hurting and confused, living with wrong assumptions and making ejections that, that are based on those assumptions, God, and therefore running away from you. So I pray, God, that with much compassion and empathy and patience and respect and boldness and courage that we go forth into this world holding out the love and light of Jesus. Lord, in our circumstances, for us to acknowledge evil for evil, but to also acknowledge your goodness. Lord, that that would embolden our steps, that would embolden our rest. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that, is, that has not found that freedom in Christ, that has not surrendered their life, understanding that we are all sinners, or understanding that none of us are too good for your judgment, but that in fact, none of all of us are unworthy of your grace and love and redemption, but that in your love, you took on flesh, you sent your son Jesus, or to live a life worthy of being our sacrifice atoning for our sin or taking on our sin and giving us his righteousness so that we would be in right standing with you and be called innocent. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you would give them courage to share that and Lord that we will be able to join in together in the mission of this world, saturating our world and in our cities with the message of Jesus in word and deed every day. In your name, amen.